You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we'll read together verses 22 through 26, and then we will pray together. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we come now to your word with the confident expectation that you will illuminate our hearts and our eyes and our minds to it. Give us, by your grace, hearts that are ready to obey and ready to hear. Help us to see in this a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Spirit of God. We pray that you would show yourself to us in the pages of this book. Bless our time together, and Spirit of God be our teacher during this time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've ended one section in the Gospel of John, first 21 verses of chapter 3, and beginning the next section in John. Funny how that works out, kind of does that as you're working your way through a book. We took 11 weeks to go through the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Didn't seem like that long, did it? You say, yeah, it seemed like that long, and a lot longer. Eleven weeks was more than adequate time. Some of you are shaking your heads. Is that because you thought it was long or short? Short. Okay. Good. Whew. Short. All right. So we're going to deal with now in the next section or introducing the next section in the Gospel of John. And sometimes it's very good when you go through it as slow and, and really trying to plow as deeply as we do here to step back, pan back as it were every once in a while and kind of make sure that we're not getting lost in the details, that we are that we're getting an appreciation or maintaining an appreciation for the whole overarching theme of the book and the development of the story as it unfolds. We don't want to get lost in the details. We want to make sure that everything we're interpreting on the micro level fits with what we see on the macro level. So just by way of sort of review and sort of panning out a little bit, we want to, I want to give you sort of an outline and a few observations just from the whole general context so that what we get from verses 22 through the end of chapter 3 sort of makes sense. The last half of John chapter 3 can be divided into two main sections. The first is verses 22 to 26, which we're dealing with this morning. And in that section, it really sets the stage to, to, for the last and greatest, I think, recorded testimony of John the Baptist. It sets the scene, and a conflict sort of comes up, and it's not a conflict that Jesus starts. He starts plenty of conflicts in the Gospel of John. And it's not a conflict that John the Baptist starts. And it's not a conflict that Jesus' disciples start. It is a conflict that John the Baptist's disciples start against Jesus. That's a little tense, isn't it? You want to make sure that if you're going to say something against somebody, that it's not Jesus that you're speaking against. So verses 22 to 26 sort of set the stage for this by describing this conflict. And then verses 27 through the end of the chapter give John the Baptist's answer to this conflict, this discussion that went on. And keep in mind, we're dealing, and I'm going to be speaking this morning, about two different Johns. 
We have John the Apostle, who's the author of the Gospel, remember that, and John the Baptist, who is a different John. So two Johns, one is the Apostle who wrote the Gospel, the other John the Baptist. Try not to get them confused, even though I'm going to say that John spoke about John. You're just going to have to kind of keep them straight in your mind. Otherwise, I'll be all day clarifying what I mean by John. The second thing to just notice by way of of sort of the general context is that in chapter 3 and chapter 4, there are three different people that are singled out, three different characters, main characters that we're introduced to. The first is Nicodemus, and we've dealt with Nicodemus, verses 1 to 21. The third main character in these two chapters is a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, those two people, number one and number three, could not be more opposite. One is a Jew, one is a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. One is a man, one is a woman. One is a worshiper of the one true God, Nicodemus, or at least seeking to worship the one true God. One, not so much, didn't really care about the one true God. One lived a very outwardly righteous, moral, ethical, morally pure life. The other, not so much. Five husbands and the one you're living with now, not your husband, Jesus says in John chapter 4. Sandwiched between these two polar opposites is in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, we're introduced to John the Baptist, or I guess we should say reintroduced to John the Baptist, because we've seen John the Baptist before in the Gospel of John, haven't we? Back in chapter 1. In fact, it's in the introduction to this Gospel that John introduces John the Baptist when he says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light so that all men might be believe. That was the goal of John's testimony. So turn back to John chapter 1, and we don't have time to review all of this, but I want to just hit some highlights of John's testimony of Christ in chapter 1 that will help you sort of appreciate more John's testimony of Christ that we're going to be looking at in John chapter 3. So John is introduced, John the Baptist is introduced in chapter 1 verse 6, but then we get to John's testimony, the Baptist testimony in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites and said, Are you the Christ, or who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he said, I am not the Christ. They said, Are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet, the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy? No, I'm not the prophet. Why then do you baptize, they asked him. And his answer is a very understandable question, because they expected that when the Messiah arrived, he would be involved in a ministry of baptism. That was what they expected of the Messiah. Here comes a man on the scene who's preaching and teaching like an Old Testament prophet, and they're wondering, is he the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not him. He is yet to come. I'm baptizing with a baptism of repentance. Look what John says. Uh, His ministry is 1, verse 23, where he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It was a preparatory ministry that he was to prepare for the Messiah. Verse 24, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place, look at verse 28, keep this in the back of your mind, in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. That's going to come in significant in just a moment. Keep that in the back of your mind. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified and saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of the heavens, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Great testimony, isn't it? All Christ-exalting, focusing on the light, just as John came to do. Verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they left John, and they followed Jesus. And that was John's testimony. Everything John said was to point to Christ. He came to bear witness to the light, not himself. He was not the prophet. He was not the Christ. He was not Elijah by his own confession. But he came to baptize and to prepare men to receive their Messiah. And he came to bear witness to the Messiah. And then the Messiah arrived, and he did what he came to do. He said, this is the Son of God. This is the one who, though I came before him, John was born before him, he existed before I did. Because he eternally existed in eternity past. And this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah of Israel. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now back to John chapter 3. Now you might ask, after John, the apostle, the author of the gospel, has already described to us the Baptist testimony in chapter 1, why does he return to John's testimony in chapter 3? Why not go from Nicodemus into the woman at the well? These are the questions that keep me awake at night. Why does he return back to John? He's sort of already dealt with John, showed that John was a faithful messenger of Christ. Why return back to John now in John chapter 3? And here is the reason, I think. Jesus has now come on the scene since the Baptist's first testimony in chapter 1. Jesus has come on the scene and he has done two things that really would have caused most people to distance themselves from him and sort of turn their back and quiet down and just keep cool about Jesus. Do you remember what they were? In John chapter 2, he did what? He came into Jerusalem and he directly entered into a conflict and rebuked the religious leaders of the entire nation in front of everyone during a feast when he did, when he cleansed the temple. And he drove out all of those people. That was a direct confrontation of the entire religious establishment of the entire nation of Israel. And he pointed out their hypocrisy, their greed, their covetousness, and their idolatry right in front of everybody. That's what he did. Then, in John chapter 3, (coughs) he said some pretty insulting things to the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. Remember we looked at that? All of the many things that would have offended a man like Nicodemus, Jesus said that. I think one of the reasons that John comes back to the Baptist and describes his testimony here in John chapter 3 is to show this, that even after Jesus publicly manifested himself to the nation of Israel, confronted the religious establishment, confronted the religious leaders, and laid down the dividing line between those who believe and those who do not believe as being himself, as if to say, Nicodemus, unless you come to me, bow to me, repent before me, and believe on me, you will perish. After saying all of those things and manifesting himself as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, when everybody else probably would have distanced themselves, John the Baptist was able to continue to step up and say, no, no, he must increase And I must decrease. In other words, John is showing that even after Jesus' public manifestation of his own deity and his own call to be the Messiah of Israel, after all of that, John the Baptist was still faithful in his testimony to proclaim the light of God to the nation of Israel. Remember John, the Apostle John, the writer of the Gospel, his goal since the beginning of chapter 1 has been to manifest the deity of Christ. The first 18 verses laid out that this one who was with God was God in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He existed as God. He came into the world. The world, the word took upon himself flesh and came and dwelt among us. 
and then everything that we have read since chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through, and it'll be this way all the way to the end of the gospel, everything has been to show that that assertion is true, that God himself took upon himself human flesh and came here and lived among us. John's whole goal is to show that that is true. So he did it in chapter 1 by showing how all the disciples, remember there were five of them, John and Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and Peter, all responded to the Messiah. Then in chapter 2, he demonstrated that God was human flesh when he came and cleansed the temple and turned water into wine in Cana of Galilee and cleansed the temple in in Jerusalem. Then in John chapter 3, he manifested the glory of God in human flesh in that conversation with Nicodemus. And now he's doing the same thing again through the testimony of John the Baptist. So all of that sort of sets the stage. And one last thing I want you to notice before we dive into the details, I want you to notice that there is one subject that is, is rife all the way through this whole context. Look at verse 22. I want you to pick out, and I'll just select some verses and we'll read them. You see if you can see the theme or the subject that recurs. Verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in and on near Salem because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now look at John chapter 4, because this theme goes all the way into the chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. I'll stop right there. Do you see something that's repeated? What is it? Aiden, you raised your hand. This is like family devotions. What is it, Aiden? Baptizing. Did everybody else see that? Because if a seven-year-old saw it and you didn't see it, you weren't paying attention. It is all the way through chapter 3, and it goes all the way into chapter 4, and this entire conflict, keep this in mind, the entire conflict that we're about to look at comes up because of one thing. Jesus was baptizing, and John was baptizing. And because both of them were baptizing, that sets the stage for everything at the end of chapter 3. And all the way into chapter 4, the issue is this baptism ministry of Jesus. All right, now let's look again at chapter 3, verse 22. Dive into this passage and see how this conflict comes up and why and what's going on in the context. After these things, Jesus' disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, there are three things in that verse which are very nonspecific. The first, after these things. We're not told how long after these things, are we? John doesn't give us any sort of a timeline as to, did this happen a week or two weeks after the cleansing of the temple? A week or two weeks after the conversation with Nicodemus? Or did this happen months after the conversation with Nicodemus? The second thing that's very unclear is where they went. Because John doesn't specify. He says they just went into the regions of Judea. And that just means the surrounding areas outside the city of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. In Jerusalem, he had his conversation with Nicodemus. But after that, at some period of time, he left and he went out into the surrounding regions. And there he was baptizing. And the third thing that's unclear is how long this period of time took place in which this conflict lasted. Because it says this happened for some time, and he was just spending some time with his disciples. The assumption, by the way, if you try and put together a timeline of all the Gospels and sort of fit this into the mix, the assumption is that this whole period of time could have lasted anywhere between a couple of weeks and up to six or seven months. There's a, a time period there where Matthew, Mark, Luke do not mention anything going on. John tells us some things that happened, but this could have happened any time within about a seven-month period of time. There are a few things that we do know for sure from verse 22. Number one, Jesus was with his disciples. Now, going back to chapter 1, we would assume that it meant the five disciples that are mentioned in chapter 1 who came to him. 
John, the apostle who wrote the gospel, Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. Those five, probably with him, may be gathering some of the other disciples at this time or making contact with some of the other disciples, but he's spending an unspecified period of time with them in an unspecified region of Judea with his disciples, but he is doing something very specific. Baptizing. Baptizing. Now we find out from John chapter 4, verse 2, that it wasn't Jesus himself who was baptizing, but whom? His disciples. Now that may seem like a very insignificant detail to you, but to everybody watching, that is a massive detail, and here's why. John the Baptist did not have his disciples baptized. John the Baptist himself personally baptized. Jesus did not personally baptize anybody. Jesus had his disciples baptize them. Now what that said to anybody watching was this, that John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples were doing the same ministry under Jesus' oversight. Jesus, in having his disciples baptized, was making himself in no way appear to be a peer of John the Baptist or in any way appear to be an equal with John the Baptist. He is in every way manifesting that he is over John the Baptist and implying that both John the Baptist and his own disciples were doing his ministry, his work, and his bidding. Now, that's significant. Why? Because John had all the time said, I'm not the Christ. There is another who is the Christ. He's greater than I. He's greater than I. In case you didn't miss it, he's greater than I. All the way through chapter 1, chapter 3. But who didn't seem to get that? John's disciples. And so even though Jesus himself was not baptizing, that was by design, as if to say, John the Baptist is doing what I want him to do, and my disciples are doing what I am to do, and I am over both of them. Got that? All right. So we know that Jesus was baptizing, or we should say having his disciples baptized. And by the way, this is interesting detail. This is the only place in all four Gospels that we read of Jesus being involved in a baptism ministry or baptizing people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it at all. We only know about it because John mentions it, and John only mentions it right here in this context. And if he did not mention it, we wouldn't know anything about it. But Jesus is baptizing, and John is baptizing. Now look at verse 23. If Jesus were baptizing and John were not baptizing, there would be no conflict. No problems. Verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So who else is doing a baptism ministry? John the Baptist is doing a baptism ministry. Where does he do it? In Anon near Salim. We don't know where today where either of those two places are. Both of those locations have been lost to history but most scholars and archaeologists feel very confident in landing at one particular location, which is about eight miles south of a city called Besan. There is a little area in which there are seven springs of water within a quarter of a mile of one central location. And most people think that that is the location where John the Baptist was ministering. Sort of up in Samaria, away from Jesus' ministry, quite a ways. Remember, Samaria was in the north section of the country, Judea in the south section of the country. Jesus was out in the regions of Judea. John the Baptist north in Samaria at this little place, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably this little place where there were seven springs of water, much water. We are told that there was much water. And why did John the Baptist need much water? Two reasons. People were coming to him, many people. And number two, I believe because of the mode of baptism. It wasn't sprinkling and it wasn't pouring. Why would I say that? You could baptize hundreds of people with a five-gallon bucket in your average well that was out in the middle of the city. But they needed much water because people were coming to them to be him to be baptized. And with a five-gallon bucket, if I'm going to sprinkle, I can baptize everybody in this room probably five or six times. With pouring, I could certainly baptize everybody in this room with a five-gallon bucket of water. 
He needed a place where water was plentiful. Why? My argument, because the biblical mode of baptism is immersion. Not sprinkling and not pouring. But that's on the side. That for another day. He did need lots of money. It's not money. Lots of (laughs) water because all of these people were coming to him, multitudes, and being baptized. But Jesus was even more successful than John. Verse 24 says, For John had not been thrown into prison, and then this discussion breaks out. And the discussion breaks out because Jesus has been more successful than John. Now here's the question that comes up at this point. What type of a baptism is this? We covered this back in chapter 1. I'm not going to rehash all this territory. What type of baptism was it that Jesus was involved in and doing? And what type of baptism was John doing? I believe both of them were by immersion, because that's how the Jews practiced the baptism of repentance and purification back then. So the question is this. Were the two baptisms, Jesus's and John's, were they different? That is to say, have different symbolism, mean different things, and be accompanied by a different message? Or were they the same, essentially the same baptism? They're either different or they're the same. Some people would argue they were different. I would argue that they are the same. Here's why I don't believe that they were different. Number one, because John in this gospel, in this text, you see nowhere where he explains any difference between what John the Baptist was doing and what Jesus is doing. The implied understanding is this. If you understand what John the Baptist was doing, then you understand what Jesus is doing. Because John doesn't differentiate between the baptisms as if to suggest that Jesus was doing something different. It's assumed that Jesus is doing the same thing that John was doing. Furthermore, if they were different baptisms and Jesus was doing his own thing with a different message, different symbolism, different outcome, there would have been no conflict between the disciples of John and this Jew about purification. There would have been no one-upmanship or this competition between the parties because Jesus would have been doing his own thing. If your job is to sell rubber mallets and somebody else's job is to sell windows, you're not in competition with each other and you don't care if they're doing something different than you're doing. But the fact that there was competition between the disciples of John And their envy over what Jesus is doing suggests that Jesus and John were doing the same thing. But listen, Jesus' popularity is on the upswing and John the Baptist's popularity is going down. Why do you think that might be? Because John kept saying, go to him. Go to him. He would baptize them, I believe, and then John would say, there is one to whom you need to follow and it is not me. You have repented, now listen. The Messiah is over there doing that baptism work. Go to Him. And so John's popularity was decreasing. Would your business go up or go down if every time a customer came in, you didn't necessarily interested in selling them anything, but you wanted to tell them about the great, marvelous benefits of going to the competition? Your business would go down, right? John's popularity was decreasing, and Jesus's was increasing. And that's what sort of sets the stage for this whole conflict. Verse 24 is an interesting editorial note. We're tempted to read right over, but there's something significant about it. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, anybody who's familiar with John the Baptist knows that once John got thrown into prison, that was it. He didn't get out of prison after that, right? You know the story of John the Baptist? He got beheaded. So verse 24, you read that and you say, what kind of an editorial note is that? John was baptizing before he got thrown into prison. Well, duh. Had he been thrown into prison, he wouldn't have been baptizing, right? So what is John doing? As with every detail in Scripture, every detail, it is there for a reason. The Spirit of God put it there for a reason, and John put it there for a reason. And here's the reason. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the other synoptic Gospels, listen, with whom John was familiar, and John's readers were familiar. By the way, oh, let me back up. This is so disjointed, you're not even going to catch this, but listen. 
This is the only place where John mentions the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Doesn't mention anywhere else. Doesn't even tell what happened to John the Baptist. John, the disciple who writes this book, assumes that you and I understand, the reader of this book understands, probably from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what happened to John the Baptist. So he is able to just mention this in passing, knowing that probably everybody that reads his gospel is going to know what happened to John the Baptist. Because he doesn't explain it. He just says that all of this happened before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. Now, when was John the Baptist thrown into prison? Obviously after this, but here's the interesting detail. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' public ministry. The beginning of what they record happens with John being thrown into prison. So they all record the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness. And right after the temptation, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, all do this. They record the temptation. Then they say, now after John was thrown into prison, here's what Jesus did. They all pick up the record of what Jesus did after John's imprisonment. Now, John, knowing that you would be familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, includes this detail as to clear up all the confusion in our minds so that we, when we read through this, don't say, hold on a second, I thought after the temptation John was thrown into the prison. You have John here speaking as if you're ignorant of the fact that he was thrown into prison. By that little sentence, here's what John is doing. John, the author. He's opening up this little window and he's saying there was a period of time between the temptation and the imprisonment that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record. This happened during that window before John was thrown into prison. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record anything of what happened during that little window between the temptation and the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Everything in John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5 take place inside of that window. That little brief phrase in verse 24 clears up all kinds of confusion moves the fog, it, the brilliance of the brevity there is marvelous by the Holy Spirit's design. Now, verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. Now, verse 24 shows us the benefits of brevity. Verse 25 shows us the limitations of brevity. Don't you wish that John would have spent just a few more minutes, a few more words explaining what happened? There arose a conflict on behalf of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. What about purification? How is purification connected in any way whatsoever with this baptizing that's going on? I think there is a connection between the purification and the baptizing. And here's the connection. The baptism that Jesus and John were doing was a baptism of repentance that was symbolic of their purification from sin in their repenting and being cleansed from their sin and preparing themselves for the Messiah. So there is a conflict that arises about purification between John's disciples, and here's what we know for sure from the wording of the text, it was John's disciples who instigated this. The discussion arose on their behalf with a Jew. Now, who is this Jew? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew if it was somebody who was hostile to Jesus or hostile to John. I wish I knew if it was somebody who was uh, a religious leader or just your average Jew. What was his name? What was his background? Where did he come from? Was he just sort of an average Jew that walked out on the scene and was baptized that these disciples picked this theological fight about purification with. I don't know any of that. I wish I knew it. But there arose a discussion instigated by John's disciples with this man who was a Jew concerning the issue of baptism and purification. And that is when John goes into this discussion, or that is when John's disciples bring it to John, this discussion that they've had, and begin to complain about Jesus and his popularity. So look at verse 25 again. The therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of the disciples, the therefore points back to the baptizing. What instigated the discussion was the baptizing of John and the baptizing of Jesus. Both of them being involved in these parallel ministries was what instigated this discussion about purification on behalf of the Jews. 
on behalf of John's disciples concerning the Jews, or with this Jew. Now verse 26, this is where the conflict really heats up. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all men are coming to him. Now the focus is on Jesus by John's disciples, but in all the wrong way. So here's my here's the scenario that bangs around in my head. Who was the Jew? Did he show up to be baptized by John the Baptist and then enter into this discussion about them? Because if if Jesus were baptizing out in the regions of Judea and gaining in popularity, and John is baptizing in a non near Salim and losing in popularity, and I show up to John and his disciples, there's one question that's floating around in my mind if I'm this Jew. And the question is this. Why should I be baptized by you since your teacher is pointing to him? Why don't I go to the one who is greater to be baptized by him instead of by your teacher? Now, how do you answer that? If you are a business owner and you are willing to admit publicly that your product, your service, your ministry, you are not as great as the other guy over there, the question in the customer's mind is, why would I get this from you rather than going to him? That is very possibly exactly what the Jew, this Jew, might have asked. And this is all sanctified speculation, which is why I'm using the word might and could have and should have and all that other political words that politicians use when they don't want to be specific. It's sanctified speculation. Why would I do this with you if I can go get it from him? And the disciples may have said, well, because this is a baptism of purification here. But isn't his a baptism of purification? Yeah, but not as good as ours. I mean, this is, this is the prophet himself. They don't call him John the Baptist for nothing. He's the real deal. If you want to get a baptism of repentance, you go to the baptizer, the Baptist. Well, why wouldn't I go to the one that he's pointing to instead of him? You see, John's incessant testimony, go to Christ, go to Christ, go to him. He's the one. Leave me. Go to him. He was starting to lose his following. So verse 26 these disciples get very jealous. And they said to him, He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now there was something that struck me when I read that. It stood out to me like black on white paper. Do you notice that they do not even mention the name of Jesus? He whom you were testifying about beyond the river, all are coming to him, and he's baptizing them. They don't even mention Jesus' name. Why is that? Did they not know his name? Oh, they knew his name. But if you have a competitive spirit, you don't even want to have to utter the name of the competition, do you? As a 49ers fan, I don't even want to have to say the name of that dirty team out of Texas that wears a star in their helmet. <laughs> you don't even want to have to utter that phrase. Why? Because what's good for them is bad for me, and what's good for me is bad for them. They don't even utter Jesus' name. John, that one on the other side of the river, the guy you were testifying about, you know the one, don't need to say his name. That's kind of how it's expressed. Well, you've testified about him over there, and now look at their, look at their competitiveness. Everybody's going to him. Everybody's leaving you and they're going to him. And implied in that is this charge, John, had you not testified about him beyond the river, we would still have a follow-up. You see that? You testified about him, and now everybody's leaving you and going to him. 
And had you not done that, you would have a bigger group than he has. Now, this really bothered the disciples. You're going to find out later on next week. didn't bother John whatsoever. John said, that's actually the whole point. That's what you're missing. But this, this got in there. They couldn't swallow this. This got stuck in their throat that Jesus was gaining in popularity, and they were missing it. Now, having looked at all the details of the text, I want to throw something out to you that I will admit up front is highly speculative. I don't get this from any scholar source, and anytime I see something or I think of something that I have not read in anybody else's writings or anything else on the context or on this passage, I am very quick to question it, put it aside, put it in a drawer, shut it, lock it, and throw away the key. Because I'm not up here to give anything novel or new or anything like that. But this is something that just sort of popped into my head. I kicked it around a little bit. I want to throw it out for your consideration. So having said all that, think very critically about what I'm about to say. Everybody clear on that? Good. What if this Jew that was had this issue of purification raised with him, what if that Jew was none other than John, the author of this gospel? Now think about it for just a second. Here's why this entered into my head. Every time John mentions himself in this gospel, he doesn't name himself. He calls himself the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other one, or the other guy, or he leaves himself completely unnamed. Every time John appears in the gospel, it's very vague, very veiled, sort of covered over. He does that purposefully. We've talked about that at the beginning of the book. He always leaves it very, very vague, never names himself. Even though he appears in all of in the events that happen in the gospel, he unfolds as a central character in this gospel oftentimes, but he never names himself anywhere in the gospel. Seems very vague here, doesn't it, who this Jew was? Now, would John the Apostle, the author of this book, have had opportunity or reason having uh, to be with John the Baptist and his disciples? He would have. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when John said, he was standing with two of his disciples and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There were two of John's disciples who left John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus. Who were they? One was Andrew and one was John, the author of this gospel. Tried to lay out, lay out that case for you in John chapter 1. So would John the author have opportunity or reason to visit John the Baptist? He certainly would because John the author was once a disciple of John the Baptist and when he was beyond the Jordan over in Bethany and heard Jesus, heard John testify about Jesus, then he left John and went to Jesus. So here's the scenario in my mind. Once again, we're still on the highly speculative territory, but this is what I'm throwing out. John the Bap- John the disciple, beyond Bethany, beyond the Jordan, heard John testify of Jesus, and he left John and returned to Jesus. Then you have unfolding the miracle in Cana of Galilee, the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Now Jesus has gone out into the regions. His disciples are baptizing. John the disciple finds himself by purpose, by design, on his way home, however, up with John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples and their old buddy John the Apostle have a discussion about baptizing and what Jesus is doing and what John is doing. And then this conflict comes up and this discussion about purification and baptism. And then the disciples leave. And what is their complaint? Verse 26. Do you remember when we were beyond the Jordan, on the other side, in Bethany, and you testified to Jesus? Everybody's leaving him and coming, or leaving you and joining him. Who left John beyond the Jordan in Bethany to follow Jesus? John the Apostle. 
And yet that seems to be the foundation of their complaint. And so I'm wondering if this Jew was John the Apostle, and now he's come back and he said, look, when I heard what John said on the other side of Bethany, I left John to follow Jesus, and you guys ought to do the same. And so they go to John the Baptist and they say, when you were testifying beyond Bethany, beyond the Jordan in Bethany, people were leaving you and going to him. You shouldn't have said that. We lost John and we lost Andrew, and we've been losing people ever since. You have to stop this hemorrhaging and stop it quick, or you're going to be left with nobody around here who's ever going to want to hang around with you at all. All speculation. But here's two things I know for two, for sure. And with this we'll close and we'll wrap it up with these two sort of dangers or warnings that I see from the text. The first, and you see this rather plainly, is the party spirit of John the Baptist's disciples, don't you? Sort of that party spirit. You and I live in a culture, in a society, in a country where heroes are worshipped and celebrities are worshipped. And they're a dime a dozen. They come and they go. And Christianity and Christians seem uh, no more immune to this than the rest of the world is. We tend to worship people that minister to us or we highly regard people. We put them up on a platform and we think that the sun rises and sets on them rather than examining their doctrine and examining their life and examining their practice, which we ought to do. And we have celebrities that we worship and we love them and they write books and they do speaking seminars and we pay hundreds of dollars to go see them and we support them financially. And I'm not saying that any of that is wrong, provided that they are the right people. I've had role models in my life whom I love and I'm very thankful for. I have role models in my life now who I love and very thankful for. And I try and emulate them and follow their godly example. And all of that is good. But we have to remember that the people that we love and that we emulate in our role models have feet of clay and they put their feet on or pants on one leg at a time just like the rest of us. Right? And that the best of men are men at best. And it seems that John the Baptist's disciples loved him more than they did his message. And they couldn't see that. The second thing that we notice, and the second danger I think we need to be aware of, is what they call today mission creep. Mission creep. It's ironic to me and almost stunning that these disciples could sit and hear John the Baptist over and over and over say, go to him. Follow him. I am here to point you to him. Now go. They heard it over and over. And yet, they were zealous for John the Baptist and not Jesus. Now I think in a very well-meaning way, they loved the truth and they were wanting to advance the truth, but what they couldn't see is how their passion for the truth was getting in in the way of the advance for the truth. John preached a true message. He was a true prophet was doing a true work. He was doing God's work. But they were so fixated upon what he was doing that they lost sight of the whole reason that they came to begin with. Why did they eventually come to John the Baptist? Because he was pointing people to Christ, and they wanted to be involved with that. They wanted to wait for the Messiah. They wanted to be about the Master's business. And slowly, maybe imperceptibly, over a period of time, ministries, people, Christians have a way of tending to lose our focus. And we start off zeroed in on this, and we do this, and this, and this. And before long, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, we forget the whole reason we started this. And what we ought to have been about over here. This is what we started, and here's what we're doing. And then we ask ourselves, how do we get from this to this? Because this isn't anything like what we started off over here. These disciples did the same thing. After a period of time, they said, we're about John the Baptist ministry, protecting him, getting crowds around him. They lost sight of the whole reason they started this to begin with, and they left everything else to follow John, and that was to point to the Messiah. And all of a sudden, the Messiah was getting in the way of their ministry. How dare he? 
And so they needed a very strong, very passionate rebuke, which is what they got, and is what we'll begin looking at next week in verse 27. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the correction that we find in your word. So many details that are here that convict us and convince us that this text is Scripture and that it is here by design of the Holy Spirit. It is here for our understanding, our edification, and our knowing. We thank you that we can know you through your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us the grace and strengthen our hearts to not be led astray after celebrities and well-known people, but to honor them as they need to be honored, but also to keep our focus on Christ who is behind it all. May we never lose sight of the Master, and may we never get to a point where our Master would stand in the way of our ministry or our mission. We ask this and call out to you for your grace in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.